Okay, so you've been through a lot of classes talking about normal anatomy and physiology of the lower extremities, the foot, and the nails. You've been through even more classes talking about common pathologic conditions and implications for you as a foot and nail care nurse. And now in the last three classes, we're gonna try to pull it all together. This class is going to focus on assessment, so guidelines for comprehensive assessment. It won't be anything new, it's just gonna be pulling the content together in a different way. Then the next class will focus on management guidelines, and the last class will include procedural demos and a case study. So let's get to work on assessment. Now we're gonna start by talking about a comprehensive assessment of any client who needs foot and nail care. So we're gonna talk about, in an ideal world, what all would you do? And then we're gonna cycle back around and we're gonna talk about screening assessment, what's absolutely essential during follow-up visits and if you're in a setting where you cannot do a comprehensive assessment. So, of course, looking big picture and then we'll break it down, you're gonna start by talking to the patient. You're going to get their history, but you're gonna focus on any vascular history, any conditions that would cause sensory motor uh, dysfunction, any neurologic or musculoskeletal disorders, do they have diabetes, and if so, what type and how long, et cetera. Are they taking any medications that would affect their ability to clot, their ability to fight infection? So we start with history. We wanna ask the patient very specifically about any pain that they're experiencing in the lower extremities or in the feet. Where's the pain located? How would they describe the pain? How bad is it using an established scale? We'll come back to this. And what makes it better, what makes it worse? Then we're gonna move into our physical assessment and we're going to look first at just their general gait, their mobility, their use of ambulatory aids. We're gonna do a vascular assessment, um, a comprehensive assessment, will include status of skin, hair, nails, pulses, cap refill, ABI, and edema. We're gonna do a sensory motor assessment to include monofilament testing, vibratory sense testing, position sense testing. We're gonna assess foot contours, presence of corns and calluses, and then we're going to assess skin and nail status, look at their footwear, and talk to them about their self-care ability. So now let's look at each component in just a little more detail. If you end up doing foot and nail care, you probably want to create an intake form that guides your assessment. On your initial history, you wanna find out from the patient, do they have any systemic diseases that would affect vascular status, skin and nail status, nerve and motor function, self-care ability. Specifically, do they have a history of coronary artery disease? 
Has anyone ever diagnosed them with lower extremity arterial disease? Have they ever been told they have lower extremity venous disease or lymphedema? Do they have diabetes? Do they have neuropathic disease? Do they have any form of arthritis? We've already said we're going to ask them about pain. We're going to do a specific pain history. We'll come back to that in a little more detail. And we want to know specifically about any difficulty with walking. Do they need ambulatory aids? Are they unsteady on their feet? Do they have issues with falls? Is walking painful? We want to know about any lesions that they have had in the past on their feet, any wounds, any dermatologic conditions. We want to know who usually takes care of their feet and how do they do it. So does their usual care involve foot soaks, involve showering, involve tub bathing? What do they do to take care of their feet and their nails? Do they go to a nail salon? Do they go to a podiatrist? And then we want to know their current list of medications. We're specifically interested in any anticoagulants and any medications that affect immune function. Now let's talk a little bit more about pain. Sometimes pain is what brings people in. And pain is a very significant indicator of different types of pathology. So we want to know where is the pain located. We want to know when the pain occurs. And if you come down to the last two bullet points, we've already said we want to know the severity using an established scale like a 1 to 10 scale. And we want to know, okay, if you're having pain, what do you do to make it better? Are there any things that you identify that make it worse? And then you want to see if the pain pattern matches any of these very common scenarios. Ischemic pain. So what are the characteristics of ischemic pain? What do we expect to hear from a patient with lower extremity arterial disease? We would expect them to tell us, you know, I really don't have much pain when I'm just sitting down with my legs down. It's when I get up and walk, the further, the further I walk, the more likely I am to have pain. But then if I rest for 10 minutes, it goes away classic claudication pain. Patients with lower extremity arterial disease are also likely to report pain with elevation. Some patients will say, I can't sleep in my bed at night because I have to have my legs down so I sleep in my recliner. Patients with venous pain typically describe it as aching pain that's worse when the swelling is worse. So for many patients with venous disease, they'll say, I'm better in the morning. After my legs have been up all night, I feel pretty good in the morning. But by the end of the day, my swelling's bad. I have a lot of aching pain then. You want to differentiate between nociceptive pain and neuropathic pain. So we always ask patients to describe the type of pain. Nociceptive pain is typically caused by tissue damage and inflammation, and it's usually described as aching pain. 
Neuropathic pain is caused by damage to the nerve receptors, and it's frequently described as burning, stinging, electric shock, pins and needles type pain. So when you're doing your pain assessment, you need to capture all of these elements so that you can determine what it most likely represents in terms of pathology. Okay, so now we're moving into our general physical assessment. We want to uh, know weight. It's not as critical to know specific weight, but we certainly want to pick up on obesity and morbid obesity because those conditions make self-care more difficult and may interfere with ambulatory status. We want to know cognitive and functional status. And a good way to get at this is to ask the patient, so walk me through a day. Um, when you get up in the morning, what wakes you up? And then do you dress yourself or does someone help you dress? Do you fix your breakfast or does someone else fix your breakfast? Do you need any help eating? Do you need help walking? So you want to get a sense as to how dependent or independent this patient is in activities of daily living, which is bathing, dressing, toileting, eating. You want to watch them walk. So you're observing their gait. You're determining their need for ambulatory aids. You're assessing ambulatory stability. This helps determine whether or not this patient needs a physical therapy referral for um, assistive devices. And one of the most important things is to ask the individual to remove their shoes and socks. That tells you, can they get down there? Can they reach their feet? Then we're going to do a vascular assessment. So we're going to first assess skin, hair, and nails. And of course, we're looking for trophic changes that would be indicative of lower extremity arterial disease, lower extremity arterial disease. That would include thin, shiny skin, reduced hair growth as compared to several years ago, thin, ridged nails. We're looking for evidence of chronic venous insufficiency, which would be hemosiderosis, like you see on the top right, flaky skin, dermatitis. You're alert to any indicators of lymphedema, which would be edema extending from the toes to the groin. It could be pitting or non-pitting. You'd be looking for skin and soft tissue fibrosis, that cobblestone appearance to the soft tissue, like you see mid-screen. You want to look at skin color and determine are there changes with dependency or with elevation. You're looking specifically for dependent ruber and elevational pallor or cyanosis which is what we see in a patient with lower extremity arterial disease and what you see on the bottom right. And then in terms of objective testing, we're going to start with capillary refill. We can use either the nail bed or the toe pad, compress the tissue until it blanches, 
count the number of seconds until normal color returns, which should be less than three seconds. Ideally, we will perform a venous filling time test. So we would have the patient in a supine position. We would elevate the legs until the veins collapsed. We would then have the patient sit and lower the leg and count the seconds until the veins refill. This is significant because filling time greater than 20 seconds is greater than 20 seconds is indicative of lower extremity arterial disease. Now, I'll point out one thing or a couple of things about venous filling time. First of all, you can only do this test if you're in a setting where you can place the patient supine and then sit them up and place the leg dependent. Secondly, you can only do this test if the veins are visible when the patient is sitting with the legs dependent. So for many individuals, yes, the veins are readily apparent, either by color or just by bulge. But if you cannot visualize the veins with me sitting with my legs down, you cannot do that test. And then of course, you're going to palpate pulses, probably the single most important um, test of vascular function is to palpate pulses. Um, you always palpate dorsalis pedis, which runs between the first and second toe over the dorsum of the foot, and the posterior tibialis, which runs inferior to the medial malleolus. Ideally, you also palpate the popliteal and femoral pulses but critical to palpate DP and PT, you need to be aware that the DP is congenitally absent in about 12 to 15% of the population. In some individuals, you need to obtain an ankle brachial index measurement. Anytime you have reason to suspect lower extremity arterial disease, because you see trophic changes, because pulses are weak, because capillary refill is prolonged, because the patient has ischemic pain, you would definitely want an ankle brachial index. Also, anytime the patient needs compression therapy. Now, this can be done with the handheld Doppler um, and a bedside, or with a bedside ABI machine or it can be done in a vascular lab. At this point, most ABIs are done in vascular labs. Not that many clinicians have handheld Dopplers, and there's concerns about accuracy just because it's very difficult to perform at the bedside. And your bedside ABI machines are still pretty expensive and so not readily available. Once you get the ABI, you need to be able to interpret it correctly. So 0.9 to 1.3 indicates normal perfusion. 0.5 to 0.9 means the patient has lower extremity arterial disease of variable severity. So obviously the higher the number, the lower the severity. As the number becomes lower, the severity is higher. 
If the ABI is less than 0.5, you have severe LEAD and the patient needs an urgent vascular consult. If the ABI is greater than 1.3, you have probable calcification of the vessels and then a vascular consult is indicated. So anytime you have abnormal results, you want to refer the patient for further vascular assessment. You also want to assess for edema. You want to note, is the edema unilateral? Is it bilateral? Is it pitting? Is it non-pitting? Is it consistent with venous disease, meaning it extends from the ankle to the knee? Or is it consistent with lymphedema, meaning it extends from the toes to the groin? And what's the severity? So if you can depress, if the depression in the soft tissue is one millimeter in depth, it's one plus. Two millimeters, two plus. You figured it out, right? Three millimeters, three plus. Then you move on to monofilament testing for evaluation of sensory function. Now, in general, we do 10-point testing. So if you look to the right, you see indicators for 10-point testing, which means you would test the first, third, and fifth toe pads, first, third, and fifth metatarsal heads. At midfoot, you check medial and lateral. You check over the heel and then you check over the dorsum, typically between the first and second toe. Some sites do four-site uh, four testing, but most sites do 10-site testing. Now, when you are testing with a monofilament, you want to use the 10-gram or 5.07 because this instrument has been tested extensively and has found to be consistently accurate and reliable in detecting loss of protective sensation. So of course, what you wanna do is have the patient either lying or sitting with their foot on the exam table. You wanna to touch it each site with enough force to turn the monofilament into a C and ask the patient to tell you each time they feel you touch. Normal function is they respond at 10 out of 10 sites. If they respond at eight out of 10 sites, they have some loss of protective sensation. If they respond at only four out of 10 sites, they have significant loss of protective sensation. And if they respond at no sites out of 10, they have total loss of protective sensation. Now, this has direct implications for patient education. So a patient who fails to respond at all 10 sites needs to be educated regarding professionally fitted footwear. It's not safe for them to buy shoes off the rack and needs to be educated regarding daily skin checks and dermal temperature checks. And of course, everyone should be reminded, always wear protective footwear when you're out of bed.
A second test of sensory function is vibratory sense testing. So you want to use a tuning fork at the base of the great toe or over the bunion bone. If the patient fails to detect vibration or fails to detect cessation of vibration, it means they have lost vibratory sense. That's significant because vibratory sense is usually the first sense to be lost, and it signals the beginning of neuropathy. And anytime we pick up on loss of vibratory sense, we need to counsel the patient that they're developing neuropathy. We need to talk to them about the importance of tight glycemic control. And we also need to investigate for any other contributory factors to neuropathy, like B12 deficiency, um, excessive alcohol intake, anything like that. We also want to do position sense testing, which tests their proprioceptive sense. Do they know where their feet are in space? Can they tell if they're on the edge of a step, if they're about to trip, if they're about to fall? So to test position sense, we have the patient close their eyes. We move their great toe and ask them to tell us, am I moving your toe towards you, away from you, to your right, to your left? Now, if they always know where I'm moving their toe, great. That means they know where their foot is in space. They'll be able to self-protect against falls. But if they are not able to consistently report their toe location, it tells me they've lost proprioceptive sense and that they're high risk for falls. So I need to educate them to always grasp the stair rail when going up and down steps and to watch their feet when they're on uneven terrain. Now we want to move on to motor testing. So we are trying to rule out motor neuropathy. So we wanna check ankle range of motion, ask the patient to point their toes to their nose, toes to the ground, move their uh, foot in circles to see do they have normal ankle range of motion. We want to see about muscle strength, so we ask them to pull their foot up while we're pushing their foot down. And we ask them to push their foot down while we're pushing their foot up. So that's testing muscle strength. If we have a hammer, we can check deep tendon reflexes by doing the ankle jerk assessment. And then we're gonna assess for bony deformities. Do we see hammer toes, mallet toes, claw toes, charco foot? Do they have overlapping toes? Finally, we want to look for abnormal weight bearing and for evidence of repetitive shear and friction. So some of you have used a Harris mat. Harris mat is basically um, an ink pad with a piece of paper on top and you ask the patient to stand on the Harris mat, full weight bearing, and it gives you a printout so that you can see if there are points where there's abnormal weight bearing. So high concentration of ink here, very low concentration here. 
And then finally, you're looking for uh, corns and calluses. We also want to assess for autonomic neuropathy. So we're looking for dry, cracked skin. We're looking for chronically wet skin. We're looking for fissures. We also want to assess for any evidence of developing or established Charcot foot deformity. So a developing Charcot foot, we might see swelling in one foot. We might see some localized heat and erythema that could indicate an unrecognized fracture, in which case we need to get imaging studies. We might see an established Charcot foot deformity, which is what you see on the bottom, which means we need to get that individual into a podorthist for customized footwear. Then we're going to assess the skin. We're looking for normal hydration and skin turgor versus maceration versus very dry cracked skin. So wet skin, dry cracked skin, both have implications for hygienic care and routine management. We're looking for calluses or corns. We're going to palpate the fat pads to see are they normal, are they thinning, are they absent. That has implications for referral for insoles. We're looking for any lesions, any ulcers, any evidence of fungal infection like tinea pedis, and then any evidence of inflammation or infection involving the nail folds and the cuticle. Then we come to the nails. We want to see how long are the nails? What are the contours of the nails? Are they growing straight? Are they curving down? Are they curving around like a ram's horn nails? Is there any evidence of ingrown nails? Do you see any erythema, any purulent drainage around the lateral nail folds? Is there, um, is the patient complaining of pain that would be associated with ingrown nails? What's the thickness of the nail? Are they thick, crumbly, brittle? Are they thin? Are they normal? Are they clean? What does the cuticle look like? And then what indicators do we see a fungal infection? Remember, classic indicators are thickening of the nail, discoloration of the nail, and abnormal integrity of the nail. So either it's crumbly or brittle. You want to check their footwear. Now, a great thing to do, um, you should do it for yourself as well, is to have the patient stand on a blank piece of paper and have someone trace around their foot. So their shoes are off, they're standing on these blank sheets of paper, and someone traces around their foot. And then you want to take the shoes they're wearing and put them on top of the tracing and see if the tracing falls outside the border of the shoe. That tells you automatically that is not a correctly fitted shoe. It's too narrow, it's too short, whatever. Look at the uh, comparison between the shoe and the tracing. So if the tracing extends beyond the um, shoe, 
on the distal end, the shoe's too short. If the tracing extends beyond the shoe at the toe box, then you need a wider toe box. So very um, informative. Every time we've done this with a group on site, we've found a lot of people in incorrectly fitted footwear. So comparing their footwear to their foot tracing, very helpful. Look at the toe box. Is it deep and wide enough? How do you know that? Well, look at the tops of the toes. Do you have hammer toes, mallet toes, claw toes? Do you have corns on the top of the toes? Do you have areas of erythema? Do you have ulcers on the top of the toes? Then your toe box is not deep enough. Look at the bunion bone and the bunionette bone. Do you see erythema? Do you see any lesions? If so, the toe box is not wide enough. Um, you want to see, do you have even wear patterns or are the wear patterns concentrated on the inner aspect of the foot, suggesting excessive pronation? So look for abnormal wear patterns. Look at the insole. Is it in good shape? Does it have holes? Are there abnormal wear patterns on the insole? What is the shoe made of? Is it leather or cloth or is it plastic? Plastic is going to trap moisture and plastic does not stretch. Leather stretches, cloth stretches. And finally, look at their socks or hosiery. Again, you want to talk to them about their usual foot care routine. So how often do they routinely shower or tub bathe? Um, do they ever wash their feet separate from showering or tub bathing? Do they soak their feet? A lot of people think it's a good idea to soak their feet when in general it isn't, so that's a good thing to ask about. Ask them, are you able to get down and wash and dry between your toes? Especially dry between your toes. If you can stand in a shower, Yes, the water's going to run over your feet, but when you get out, can you dry effectively between your toes? How do you try to do it? Do you use moisturizers, and which ones do you use? Who does your nails, and how often? And do you have a podiatrist? Now, in some situations, you cannot do a comprehensive assessment, so you have to pare it down. Um, anytime you're in a setting where you have no option to place the patient supine, that automatically means you can't do ABI testing and you cannot do venous refill testing. Um, you may be in a setting where there's no equipment for ABI testing, or maybe you don't have a reflex hammer, so you can't check reflexes, or you don't have a Harris mat. And finally, what about follow-up visits? You're not going to do a comprehensive assessment every time the person comes back. So there are situations where you might do a screening assessment. Screening assessment is appropriate for follow-up, and it's appropriate in situations where you cannot do a complete assessment. It will at least identify people who might need further assessment. So what does a screening assessment look like? When you're talking to a returning patient, you definitely want to know about any recent illnesses, any new diagnoses, any changes in medications. 
If it was a first-time patient, you would go ahead and get the complete history. You definitely want to do a pain assessment every visit because pain changes from one visit to another. On your vascular assessment, you always check skin, hair, and nails for any trophic changes. You always check cap refill. You always check pulses. And you always check for edema. On sensory motor testing, you're always paying attention to gait and to any ambulatory aids. You're going to do monofilament testing if the patient's at risk for neuropathy. Even if you did monofilament testing last time, ideally you would do it every few months because, again, it changes. Results change. You always assess for deformities. You always assess for corns and calluses. You always check the status of skin, nails, and footwear, and you want to know what's going on with your foot care routines. Okay, so now we have gone through assessment. Once you do your assessment, you should have a clear picture of any conditions this patient has that would place them at greater risk for foot and nail problems or that would mean that you need to be very cautious in providing foot and nail care. You should know about medications. You should know what's going on with their pain status. You, would, you should always know about vascular status, any evidence of neuropathy, their gait, the status of their skin and nails, their self-care ability, and their footwear and foot care. So in the next class, we're going to talk about how you put all this together and what interventions you should be prepared to provide. Thank you.